The following audio content was recorded at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit upc.org. As a UW grad and former intern of UMIN, I got to hang out as a UMIN intern for a couple of years, and it was great. Um, And as well as a strong fan of many of you in this room, I am honored to be here. Some of you may know my son, Ben, who Ryan described as one who chose to, um, he's trying to see what it's like to be a Northwest boy on the East Coast. He did not follow me here to the UW, and instead he's on the East Coast. But he was home over Christmas, and he came to the inn the first time you gathered in January. And when he came home, um, and this is from someone who does not compliment lightly, I know this as a fact. He said, Ryan Church speaks to college students about faith and life better than anyone I know. It's like our little love feast here, Brian. (laughs) Better than anyone I know. Now, you have to appreciate, he's got two parents as pastors. Ryan speaks to college students about life and faith better than anyone I know. They are so lucky. So if you take away anything tonight, just kind of go, we live in Seattle and... Maybe. We live in Seattle, and God is moving in this part of our country. God is showing up right here where you are. What you are doing right here is stunning. Don't take this for granted. This is amazing, and you are so fortunate to have the human staff that you do. Amen? But my other reason for being here tonight is to affirm you. Your presence here shows that you are in on a very important secret, a very important secret. It's a radical secret because your participation in a core group is revolutionary. It is transformative. And the fact that you have made a decision in the midst of all of the opportunities you have as a college student. And what I know, they come at you. They come at you like a locomotive. Like, I could do this, and I could do this, and maybe I should do this. And you start thinking, if you never were diagnosed with ADD, you have it now. Because there's so much. And yet in the midst of that, that you're choosing to be a part of a core group, it is transformative, and it is changing the world. Now, you might say, wait a minute. I'm just in this small gathering. We eat ice cream. We eat Oreos. We're just a handful of people. We meet for a couple of hours a week. If that, we don't have perfect attendance. Sometimes our conversations meander. Sometimes we don't really even talk about the Bible. Um, These folks aren't really even necessarily my closest friends. You know, I, I don't know if I'm getting anything out of it. Sometimes I'm really scared to share. I mean, if they really know the truth... Sometimes I don't know what to share. And from an exterior perspective, you are partially right. But at the core, huh? there is a reason that's a good word, because that means center, that means heart. At the core, there is a breathtaking transformation going on. And I would challenge you that this is the secret that you are in on. Your participation in these core groups has a ripple effect. It has a ripple effect that is and will grow you toward wholeness, 
to becoming more who God has created you to be, to living more fully into the person that you are meant to be in this complex world that we live in, to being more you. You may not see it now. You may not see it in five years. You may not see it even in 10 years. No, you will see the ripple. But you will see it. And you may even, 35 years later, go, wow, that core group. They believed in Jesus and they believed in me. But it also has a ripple effect on the person beside you. You have no idea. The conversations you're having, the way that you're interacting, the impact you're having on the person beside you. You have no idea that your willingness to participate in a core group is influencing relationships you will have in the future. That you will live better and more fully and more hopefully in relationships that you don't even know the names of these people and the cities they live in and where you might even be living. It will have an impact because you are here. And that means your participation here is how God is changing communities in the future. The cultural anthropologist Margaret Margaret Mead wrote once, and she's quite famous for this, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I'm gonna go boldly one step further um, with Dr. Mead. What changes the world are small gatherings of people such as yourself. But I believe they are small gatherings of people who gather with Christ at the center to say, we're going to wrestle with scripture and say, do I believe this? Do you have doubts about this? What does this mean? What does this mean for our lives? What does this mean for the realities of what we do? That it's small groups such as you who are willing to take those risky steps of sharing your lives which involves praying, and sometimes it just means sharing, who take those risky steps to serve alongside one another. So I do have those three S's, scripture, sharing, serving. I had to find out some way to do that. Taking time to support one another and affirm to one another that Jesus says you matter. I mean, face it, you get places all throughout your week that make you question if you matter. And it may even come from your families. It may come from a class. It may come from just those big questions of what am I going to do with my life? But to have a place where you come back again and go, Jesus says, we matter. That is changing the world. But there's challenges to this. And one of the challenges comes from the church. Because unfortunately, one of the things we've done with all the best intentions in the world is we've turned being in a small group as the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be in a small group. It's become almost like um, a sign of passage. Like, I am really holy. I'm in a small group. And that becomes, as we all know, the first step towards guilt and obligation. And I don't want to do it. It's like dieting, Right? Rather than eating well because it's good to eat well, I don't want to do it. And then this obligation becomes syncretized with our cultural consumer message that says, well, it's only worth your time if you clearly are benefiting from it. 
And so I think, I, this happens in our churches, not amongst you, I'm sure, but this happens in our churches. You know, sign, it's small group Sunday or Tuesday or Thursday, and you eagerly sign up because thou shalt be in a small group, and you go, but it's not like, it might be uncomfortable. You're not sure about the people. It's different than you expected. It's you fill in the blank. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, I don't want to be part of this. I know, because I've done it. I know, because I've tried to connect people in small groups. Steve Hayner, who was the former pastor of UMIN when I was a student, um, would often say, we are a fickle people. We're only committed until the next opportunity comes along. And part of the reason is because we are so enticed by what we think things should be. I have a couple of myths about small groups, but the false images of groups that get in the way. I throw these out fast. You may come up with your own. I think one of the myths is, to be deep, this must be serious. I think that's a myth, that we have to be serious about how we do small groups. Maybe... You just want to be with a group and have fun. I think a second myth is we need to be people with people just like us. And actually, that would be lovely to be on that hockey team. I agree. Another myth is every moment should be an exciting adventure. What if it's not always exciting? What if it's not always adventurous? And then there's people like Ryan Church who really thinks that if he just puts on the costume, he can do it. And then I think another, (laughs) it should always be stimulating. It should always be this conversation where you're in debate and you're changing the world through, you know, Lincoln's cabin, cabinet. Or we have to be on the same path. Okay, I had to do that one. Come on, it's 50 years since the Beatles. Um, Or it should meet my needs. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? I've got my subject. It should meet my needs. Do you connect with any of these? Do you feel that pressure? Are there others? Perhaps there's others that you come up with, but I think there are these these ideas out there. And then we're in this group and we think, oh, that's not quite what I expected. And the deeper question is, but where's God in the midst? Where's what's God really doing? Because a lot of this is all about image. It's all about perception. And God is always about something at the root and something radical, something at the core that it's transformation. And I would challenge you that the deeper question we need to always be asking is, I think I have another slide coming. Is there another one? Is this reality? Go ahead. Are we living with this gospel reality that saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to one another? And so instead of asking questions like, does this meet my expectations? Does this fit my ideal? Are we asking the questions of, what is God desiring to show you right now, me right now, through the core group that he's given me? Because maybe you're with a group of people because there is something powerfully unique about what is happening in this moment that you can't see yet. But that is transformative. When, um, when Janie asked me to speak, I confess, I thought, well, me? I don't go on the small group circuit speaking thing. I haven't written a book on small groups. But I have to say, I did pause then and do a little bit of math. And I realized 
that I have been involved in some kind of small group for 35 years, which kind of stunned me. The first one I was in was when I was two. No, I'm just, that's not true. But I won't, I will not tell you. You can figure that one out. I will not tell you what age I was. I was a little older than two. But I've been in small group. Now, this is also important, and I'm revealing a little bit of myself of jealousy. I've not been in one small group for 35 years. I know those people. Those people are amazing. There are those people out there that have been in the same small group, core group, whatever they may call it now, 35 years. No, I've been like in 100 small groups over 35 years. But there are two realizations I made as I thought about that. The first was realizing that in those 35 years, there's actually only about four, maybe five years that I wasn't in a small group. And then I made a second realization. When I looked back on those years, those were really off-kilter years. Now, I will tell you, not every group has been the fireworks blow your socks off experience. Some of them have been hard. Some of them have been times when I've um, not always known, do I connect here? And yet I carry each of those groups. But the hardest years where I felt off kilter, where I felt like um, my doubts overwhelmed me to a place of isolation and loneliness, were in those years when there was no group. And ironically, a couple of them, I was in seminary. There you go. Here are a couple of discoveries that I've made that I want to share. Some of the groups that I've been in are the groups, some of the groups that I would say that I've carried with me the most, and I do look at as the most place of growth and transformative, are the ones where people, at first glance, seemed so different than me. And I even struggled in the most. There was one group I was in, I remember that, I think I was in my mid-20s, and I could pick out something about every person I didn't really like. This one woman, she just talked too much about things that I wasn't interested in. Another person, I, I would have, if I'm really honest, I would have said, oh, she's kind of shallow. Another person, I might have said, she's just constantly obsessed about who she's dating. Really, isn't there anything else? Another person um, just was um, worried about work and worried, worried, worried. And then one night I, um, I attended the group with some sad news that I was facing in my family. And it was really overwhelming. It was raw. And I opened up and I said, oh, this is what's going on. And this is what's going on in my life. And these women looked at me and began to cry with me. And then they prayed for me that maybe I had not quite experienced up to that, at that age by a group of people before. And then one woman looked at me with kindness in her eyes and said, you finally showed up, Renee. And I realized in my judgmental attitude in this group, I'd been the closed one. I'd been the metaphorically arms-crossed one. And that group changed that night because I showed up. So often I realized, I go to groups thinking, what am I going to get out of it? And so often God's saying, what are you going to give? And what are you going to discover? And what are you going to receive that you don't expect? And each group is an important part of our journeys. When I was in college, I was pretty shy. 
I was pretty intense. And well, you wouldn't be surprised I was like this a little bit in that group in my 20s because I was scared to talk about my scuff. I was scared to be vulnerable. My intern at the time invited me to be part of a group. We called it Seed back then. I guess we were like the middle of the core. <laughs> but I would go. And um, I don't think I said much. And every week she'd say, Renee, just come. Showing up matters. And for some reason, I believed her. I remember one time I finally got bold enough. You know, I was, wasn't one to pray out loud. And I remember the person said, okay, we're going to pray. Only he said, we're going to pray quietly. I missed the quietly part. And I thought, oh, I'm going to finally pray. And I prayed out loud. And then I realized he'd said quietly and nobody else was praying. And I thought, oh my gosh, I just want to sink into a, I want to fall into a sinkhole right now. And then, I was so embarrassed. You know, right? You know. But it's in that group that I realized praying isn't about me. Isn't it about whether I made a mistake? That group is the beginning of my learning to pray to God and not to the people around me. That group was a place where I began to learn how to make friendships that I still have all these years later. Though we've been like this. Thirdly, God works through the individuals in each small group. He works through the individuals to equip you for what you need. And you don't know yet how God's equipping you through the people in your group. You don't know how God's equipping you because of the ways you're interacting together. But God's equipping you. Um, Ryan mentioned that we are part of this church that's in South Lake Union. Our, we have a faith community. We have an extended campus that meets. But we don't call the building a church because it's a venue and it's a cafe. And the front is a cafe. So we run this cafe in South Lake Union. And um, I have been so struck in this last couple of years of doing this cafe about all the conversations I get into with people in this cafe. They don't know I'm a pastor. I don't really know what they think I am. But, well, some of them do. But it takes a while But I've thought about this as I've entered into these conversations with people and as I've learned to ask questions and as I've learned about the life of these people who are coming into this cafe, some on a weekly basis, some on a daily basis, I thought, where did I learn how to do this? You know where I learned how to do it? I'm shy, remember? I'm kind of intense. I'm scared to be vulnerable. I learned it from being in small groups. I learned how to ask questions from being in small groups. I learned to take risks by being in small groups. I learned that God shows up by being in small groups. I did not learn that in a seminary class. And I'm realizing in the midst of it that even in our cafe, we kind of have like a core group that meets and is sharing lives together. And fourthly, I've realized my regrets over the last 35 years of groups is that when I would depart from a group because I was scared or disappointed, or hurt, which I have done, it was my loss. And maybe it was the loss of what I don't even know. Because the times that I hung in there, and the times of being hurt and disappointed, were times when Jesus would show up in remarkable ways to say, when two or three are gathered, I am in your midst. What I am observing in these last years 
is that we live in a world of people who are lonely. They're disconnected, they're disillusioned. There's a reason why it's called Seattle Freeze, but it's true. When I talk about these people who come into our cafe, they're so longing for community. They're so longing to know they matter. They don't necessarily even know how to talk about faith and how it might connect to life. They're longing. And I am convinced more than ever that what you are doing right now is vital. Because what you are doing right now is learning how to be a community. And you will take this through life in places you don't even know. But even more, you're knowing that God shows up in community. And I do have faith conversations with people in our cafe, with people that I'm not sure they would ever come on a Sunday morning to a worship service. But they're longing for what you are learning how to do in your core groups. And you will carry this forth. I am convinced more than ever, that we need people like you all in our current culture who can imagine a way out of isolated individualism. Your group, being in a group, being committed, is inviting you to be people who imagine a way out of isolated individualism. Because you're following a God who is in a small group. Why are small groups important? God models a small group. The Trinity is a small group. I mean, you think about it in Genesis when God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. God is in conversation with his small group about how to create and how to create us, us who he creates to be in relationship with one another. Our need for community is real because it's how we're created to be. You also carry forth this good news that Jesus always did ministry in small groups. And as Jesus did ministry in small groups, he taught his disciples to do ministries in small groups. And even said that when we gather together, we actually do even greater things together because of the spirit that has come upon us since his resurrection and ascension. He doesn't call us to do ministry in isolation. Jesus didn't do ministry in isolation. He calls us to do it together, and transformative things happen. From the beginning of the early church, what you are doing here has always been what we've been about. Um, I want to end with Hebrews 10. It's a passage I thought about, okay, I want to leave you with some scripture. And I came back to this one again and again because Hebrews is a book, possibly written by a woman, possibly written by Priscilla. Um, But more importantly, it's a book that was written in a time when it had been a while since Jesus had ascended. Culture was pressing in. Life was getting tough. And it was really easy to be influenced by the voices around in the culture. It was really easy to think they were crazy. It was really easy to compromise. It was really easy to lose Jesus and to look for other means. But ultimately, they were losing themselves. 
And the writer of Hebrews gives this charge, which I call the life-giving invitation, and begins it by saying, so friends, we can now, without hesitation, because of Jesus, walk right up to God. You don't need another way. You don't need all those other things that feed you, make you think they're going to save you or going to give you identity and status and all of those things. You've got Jesus. Jesus has cleared the way. And then I know this is really corny, but then the writer of Hebrews gives what I call the four lettuces because they're lettuce, the four lettuces. Let us. Okay, I know, I was really corny. I have a 13-year-old also. Did Ryan say that? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart because Jesus has shown the way, cleared the way. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us consider how we encourage that encourage, root word, core, heart. Let us consider how we encourage one another toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But I would challenge you that when we quit meeting together, it's really hard to draw near to God with a sincere heart because all the voices, all the doubts, all the things that say, you're not good enough, you're not right, there's another way, come creeping in. Let us not quit, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But more importantly, I want to affirm, you are doing it. Well done. Trust God is doing something transformative. And so I invite you as you go into the rest of this year to let yourselves ask, ask of yourself, will you let God surprise you and transform you as you spend time in your core group? Where are you being invited to listen in new ways? To learn, to love, to let go and trust. I end with Ephesians 3. Now unto him, who by the power at work within us, the Spirit, is able to accomplish more than we can ask or even imagine. To him be glory in your core group and in all of the church, and in Christ Jesus our Lord, to all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.